we jump into that, let me just review quickly. You know, what we've been talking about in our series, Activated, understanding that God has activated us. If we are saved, if we are children of God, if our identity is in Christ, then he has activated us. And that very first message that I gave, I have the, the illustration of a match. Go ahead and throw some of those slides up there. I don't have it with me. I don't want to start a fire on Mother's Day. So we have the illustration of a match. And again, what good is a match unless it has been struck, right? There's no good. It is not uh, living up to its full potential. Once that match has been struck, it has been activated. Amazing potential within that match. It creates fire. We also then talked about the, the need for us to understand that we are activated. If we are a child of God, if we are saved, we have been activated, and the potential that is in us is so great. Uh, the next week, the next illustration that we talked about was the illustration of the orange. And there are many people that are like an orange. Now, we have two oranges up there. We've got one that is nice, that is cut up, uh, fresh fruit, and then one that has been sitting on your counter for a couple weeks. Uh, some of you guys have that. You know, you have those hidden places where you didn't realize you had fruit. Anybody have places like that? that your kids hide fruit under their bed? Yes, you understand what I'm talking about. So that's usually what turns out into that picture. But what we talked about is that now the orange, it was not intended to sit, right? It was not intended for the purpose of just sitting and being a nice decoration. If you want a nice decoration of an orange, get a fake orange. Don't get a real orange because it's going to turn into the bottom picture. But once you cut up that orange, once you peel it open, you see the amazing fruit and the sweetness that is inside of the orange, right? And the ability of the orange, that, that in the orange, there's the ability to take the seeds out of that orange and plant those seeds and do what? Create other orange trees or orange bushes. But you have to cut it up. You have to open it up. And again, as a Christian, we were meant to be cut open. We were meant to, to be spread out, to take what God has given us and spread it out to the nations. And then, I think last week, we talked about shapes. We got that one? Yeah, this is a great picture. Uh, what shape are you? <laughs> it's for all the kids that are here today. Uh, 70 and up. Um, uh, all of our, you know, think about the different shapes. And I had, you know, one of those toys in the nursery uh, last week. And, and, and the reality is that you cannot force, well, you can, but you're not supposed to force a shape into a hole that it's not supposed to go to. In a sense, the, the square is supposed to go into the square-shaped hole. Well, it's not a hole, but square-shaped pole, whatever it is. All of us have been designed for a specific purpose, for a specific reason. We are unique, and God has made us that way. And we all come together within the local church. And we have to understand in the series in the book of Acts that a thriving church is an active church. That's one thing that stands out to me more than anything as I study the book of Acts. And I'm just going to be honest with you just for a minute. So when I was, when I was younger, probably... Uh, in my teenage years, and probably even early in, in college, I hated the book of Acts. Like, whoa, why would you say something like that as a preacher? Here, here's why. I had a misunderstanding. A lot of times when we had a missionary or church planner come to our church, they would always preach out of the book of Acts. It seemed like a common book. So in my amazing wisdom that I did not have, that I thought I had, Every time they came, I'm like, seriously? They're going to preach out of Acts? Don't they know there's like 65 other books of the Bible that they can preach out of? I've heard this message before. I'm sure some of you might act like that sometimes when I say, all right, open your Bible to a certain book. That was me until I started studying it myself and I realized, wow, I was foolish. I was wrong because there is so much in there that I didn't understand because I knew Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You know, part of the Great Commission, we're supposed to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And in my mind, it was blah, 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 blah. Like the, 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 um, the peanuts, wah, 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 wah. That's what it sounded like to me. I'm just being honest. But again, as I've studied scripture and as I've grown and matured in my faith, I've realized that not just this book, but so many other books are great treasure chests. And there's so much to be explored within that book. And as I've studied Acts, it's turned into one of my favorite books because there is so much for Christians today. There is so much for the church to emulate, to pattern, now, let me ask you a very important question before we dig into the, the notes this morning. How many have ever heard the term influencer? Anybody? An influencer? All right. Some of you may not have. Uh, Amanda, what is an influencer in your opinion? My opinion? Whatever. Both.
Gotcha. Very good. That's it in a nutshell. Um, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Here's a, a definition of an influencer. It's a person with the ability to influence potential buyers of a product or a service by promoting or recommending the items on social media. One who exerts influence. It's another definition. Or a person who inspires or guides the actions of others. And the reason I'm using this because... In my opinion, I believe the church at Antioch is an influencing church. They are promoting a model for us that we should follow as any New Testament church should follow. And really what we see in this church at Antioch is that Antioch gives us a model of a church that influenced and impacted their community. And because of their influence, here's the amazing thing that happened. They changed the world. How many would love to change the world? I would love to change the world for good. I would love to be our, have our church here in Decatur, Eagle Drive, to be a church that is an influencing church, that church that is really setting the world on fire. You know, our, our theme for last year and our theme, our, our theme verse really for our school, Christian school that we started this year, is Acts chapter 17, verse 6. And the last part of that verse says, these that have turned the world upside down. You know, what I desire is that we create a model that is influencing people to go out and turn the world upside down for Christ. Because our world, as we all know, has been turned upside down in the opposite way, right? So what we need to do is turn it back upside down again, back for Christ. And that's what Antioch really did. They sent out individuals, Paul and Barnabas and so many others, that really made a difference on their community and the communities around them. And that's what I desire most importantly as a pastor. You know, our, our, our theme statement for our church or our vision statement is we exist to reach people with the radical power of the gospel. That was Antioch. That's why they existed. They did amazing things, amazing operations. It was the base for worldwide missions. And we're going to ask some specific questions today, but what made Antioch so powerful? Now, before I get there, let me just share a couple things about the city of Antioch itself, uh, just for understanding. Now, Jerusalem was the Jewish base, but further expansion into the world was headquartered from this time forward in the town of Antioch. In the 4th century BC, Alexander the Great conquered an astonishing amount of territory in his efforts to Hellenize, or basically make the whole world Greeks, or Greek-speaking, all the more astonishing is the fact that Alexander did all of this while he was in his early 20s. He died at the about, about the age of 26 years old, which probably is astounding to some people because we've heard reference of Alexander the Great and all that he did. When Alexander the Great died, his empire was divided among four generals, and it was then consolidated into two dynasties, the Seleucid dynasty and the Ptolemaic dynasty. The Ptolemaic, or Ptolemaic dyna, or section had a tremendous impact on places like Palestine and Egypt and Alexandria. But the Seleucids, who controlled Syria and that portion of Alexander's conquest, also became a very important Jewish, uh, to, to Jewish history during this period. Daniel prophesied the desecration of the temple with the abomination of desolation. And the little town of Antioch was built in this dynasty by the son of Antiochus who named the town to honor his father. Antioch prospered tremendously in a short period of time because of the caravan routes that facilitated it becoming a very commercial center. Not only did it become a commercial center, but it also became a very important religious center for pagan religions that practiced temple prostitution. It was a city of moral laxity. It was also a very sophisticated city, uh, this one commentator says that Antioch was very much like our modern-day city of New York City. To give us an understanding, to give us a, a background of what this city was, this was a very important city in this day. Now, there are many things, again, we can discuss about Antioch, but one thing that really stands out to me before I get into the notes and before I get into this passage is this. This church had been shaped by, molded by, and fueled by the gospel. I want that to sit in. 
This church had been shaped by, molded by, and fueled by the gospel. Everything they did was so that the gospel could go forth. Everything they tried to do, everything they tried to establish was that the gospel would advance. So let's just stop right there for just a second. Is everything we do as a church, everything we do as a Christian, so that the gospel advance? I hope it is. I pray it is. Again, Antioch existed to truly reach people with the radical power of the gospel, and because of that, they lived on mission. So how did this church become an influencing church? Let's look at verse number 19. Acts chapter 11, verse number 19. Now they were scattered abroad. Remember, I think back in Acts chapter 7 and 8, or Acts chapter 8, the church had been scattered because of per, or, 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 persecution. I can't think of the word. Uh, persecution. They'd been scattered abroad with persecution that arose when Stephen traveled as far as Phinis and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. So at this time, basically, we talked about that last week with Peter, the gospel had really only gone forward to the Jews. But remember the commission that God or Jesus had sent and left his disciples with and us with was the gospel to go to all the world, all mankind, right? Not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles and everyone else. Verse number 20, and some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, these were not Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Now, this is very important. And a great number believed. We don't know how many that was, but a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. This wasn't just Jews. Remember, earlier on in chapter 10 and chapter 11, we had talked about uh, Peter having to get his prejudices out of him and his preconceived notion about God loves Jews and he hates the Gentiles. That was wrong. And God was trying to teach him some very important things. Verse number 22, then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas. So Jerusalem heard about all that was going on in Antioch, which was a little bit north of Jerusalem. They heard about all the amazing things that were going on. So they sent Barnabas, and we were introduced to Barnabas a couple chapters ago that he should go as far as Antioch and really see what was going on. Verse 23, who when he came and had seen the grace of God, very important, was glad. He was glad. And it wasn't, again, remember, remember last week when we talked about Peter, he had to go back to the church of Jerusalem, and they were really more upset with him that he ate with the Gentile instead of being excited that people were getting saved. So what we're seeing here, Barnabas, he's excited. He is glad that people are being saved, that the church is growing and going forward. Verse 23, who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad and exhorted them, he encouraged them all. Hey, you're doing a great job. That with purpose of heart, they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost. And a faith and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. Remember, Saul had been separated uh, for several years and really trying to, to learn under uh, a God. And he was trying to really teach him some things before he really started his ministry here on this earth. And his name was changed to Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves. So they spent a whole year with this church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Remember, up to this point, they were never called Christians. They were really referred to as those of the way. Remember when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? And we're going to talk about this specific title in just a minute. And in these days, verse 27, came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus. And signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth or a famine throughout all the world, which, could, uh, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren. They, they sent them goods and money and, and gifts to try to help them because there was this great famine in the land, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this day. And Lord, we are thankful on this Mother's Day that we can celebrate our mothers and we can be very thankful for all that they have done and really talk about influence. Mothers have the greatest really influence on, probably on the face of this earth as they've influenced so many uh, amazing people 
And Lord, I pray that you'd be with the mothers today and the grandmothers and the great-grandmothers that are here to continue to pour out their influence of what you have given them to the generation to come. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us today as we look at this church in Antioch, as we introduce this church today and then get back to it in a couple weeks, as we see some very important principles of what our church should emulate and really what any New Testament church should follow after. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us. I pray that you'd bless us in our study time today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Three things that I want to look at this morning. How did Antioch become an influencing church? First of all, by effective evangelism. These are really simple things, but it's all in the passage for us today. By effective evangelism. Verse 19 through 21, again, now when they were scattered abroad, remember the church had been scattered because of the persecution with Stephen. They went as far as, as Phidus and Cyprus and Antioch. Uh, do we have that map, Michael? Let's pop up that map quickly. So I know it's kind of hard to see, but let me, let me find it. Where's it at? Um, all right, first of all, I know it's difficult to see, but right here is Jerusalem. So this is where it, it originated. Everything started and originated here. And then... We have Antioch way up here, okay? Staying with me here? Antioch is way up here. This church would be the sending agency for the gospel to go all over the known world, into Asia Minor, Minor and into Europe. So we have Cilicia, and we have Cyprus, and we have Cappadocia, and, and Syria, and all of these places, Judea down here, Egypt. This church would be the sending agency, and there are people from this church, from places like Cyprus and Cilicia and other places that are reaching others besides just those in Jerusalem with the gospel. Again, very important to understand the context here because the church had been scattered abroad. Antioch would become a dynamic church. And up to this point, those scattered had mainly only preached to the Jews. But everything is starting to change. Look at verse number 20. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Go back to that map, map please. Some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Uh, we have Cyprus here. Uh, where is Cyrene? I just lost it. I can't remember. I think actually Cyrene is actually down here in northern, northern, or northern Africa. So we have men of Cyprus, not Jews, men of northern Cyrene, which is northern Africa. Again, they are not Jews. They are not from Jerusalem. They are not Israelites. So again, understand that. Going back to verse number 20 now. I think I'm done with the, the map and the illustration. Verse number 20. So we have men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, they traveled to Antioch, they spake unto Grecians, again, others that were not Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus. So everywhere they went, they preached courageously the gospel to not only Jews, but also to the Greeks, to the Hellenists, as they were referred to. Timothy Keller calls these evangelists mavericks. F.F. F. Bruce and John Stott refer to them as daring spirits. You see, these men had traveled as far as northern Africa to spread the gospel to the world because they realized that if they were saved, they too were activated, right? And they had a job to do. Their job was not just to stay where they were, their job was to spread out and to share it with all those that didn't know. Now, think about this. How many have ever learned something in your life? Anybody? Brother Ron, have you learned something in your life? A couple things? Okay, good. We've all learned something. Now, when you learn something, it's important to then do what with what you've learned? Share it, teach it, right? Very important to teach it to other people especially you think about salvation, you think about Christianity, you think about the gospel. Now, it's important to teach your children, you know, how to tie their shoes and um, how to not be in a diaper the rest of their life and things like that. Very important. But how much more important is it for us to teach people about Jesus Christ? It's very important. And especially those of us that have understood what it means to be saved and have asked Jesus to save us, how much more important is it to us to share what we have with other people? That's what is going on here. They are effective in their evangelism. You know, the first mention in history of someone outside of the apostles strategically and intentionally reaching people with the gospel is found right here. 
And I think these verses show us a few reasons of why their evangelism was so effective. First of all, they had a cultural engagement mentality. They had a cultural engagement mentality. The past couple of weeks, we've been talking about prejudices within the early church. Peter had to have those prejudices, those biases removed from him. God had to help him understand that, hey, it's not about just the Jews only. It's about all the world. I used Israel, I used the Jewish nation to be the vehicle to spread the gospel, not just to hold it amongst yourselves. So they had a cultural engagement mentality. Again, all of us have prejudice, but one that has truly allowed the gospel to transform them has allowed their cultural prejudice to be stripped away. And any thriving church is a church that has allowed their prejudice, their cultural prejudice, to be stripped away from them. And honestly, I fear, again, we, we know this, just watching news and being on social media, it is still prevalent today, is it not? It's all over. And sadly, it's in a lot of our churches. There is still cultural bias and cultural prejudice that, man, I don't want those types of people in my church. Who do we think we are? Again, when we get to heaven, every kindred, every tongue, every nation from all over the world is going to be gathered around the throne. It's not going to be like, well, I'm not going to associate with those people. <laughs> no. You see, we've got to get beyond that mentality right here. And I know because of the culture we're living in, they've basically, they're not, they, they preach about unity, but they're really just trying to separate us. But it's for the church to come together to bring unity, to realize that we are all one in the same in Christ. And what, what I see here is that these men, these men of Cyprus and, and uh, Cyrene and, and other places, I don't see an anti-Gentile bias. It appears to me, and this is important, that kind of like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, they knew how to be all things to all people so they can reach all people with the gospel. And the thing that stands out, why their evangelism was so effective, it, it's the fact that this... You know, it's hard to be truly effective in your witness if you can't get beyond your bias. You know, if God has told me and told you as a Christian, if you're a Christian, to go out into all the world and preach the gospel, that means people besides Texans, besides Americans, people out of our own little comfort zone. So if we really want to be effective in our evangelism and our witness, we can't be effective if we can't get beyond our bias right? Now, fortunately, God can still use even our bias and prejudice to reach people. And the story in the, in the, in the, in the Bible that stands out to me is uh, Jonah. You know, God told Jonah to go. He's like, no, 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 I'm not going. You know, the fight back and forth of all that. And then finally, Jonah goes to Nineveh, preaches the gospel. I mean, the whole city basically repents you know, turned from their wickedness, and then Jonah goes outside the city and like, all right, go ahead and kill him, God. Like, even he couldn't get beyond his bias and prejudice. But fortunately, God can still use that to reach people. And I'm thankful that God has still used my insignificance and my bias at times to reach people with the gospel. But the point I'm trying to make is that the, these people here in this church... There was a cultural engagement mentality that, hey, we're reaching our culture. It doesn't matter what our culture looks like. It's not just one, one group of people. You think about New York. I mean, it's, it's a melting pot, right? There is a lot of different nationalities and people groups in New York City. And it's very easy to like, well, we're just going to be a white church. We're going to be a black church. We're going to be an Asian church. We're going to be a Hispanic church. We're going to be... No, that's not biblical. A biblical model is we're going to be a cultural church, that we're going to have every culture worshiping, even if they do things differently. You know, we showed some pictures and videos of, you know, our team that got back from Africa. They worshiped a little bit different than we do in America, didn't they, Justin? But that was okay. That was their culture, and honestly, I enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed worshiping with others that did not look like me, did not talk like me, but we had the same unity in the fact that we had the same God that we serve and the same God that we can worship and, and bow our head in praise and adoration of who he is and what he has done. 
Second thing, quickly as we move on, not only did they have a cultural engagement mentality, but they had a gospel intelligibility. What I mean is they were very intellect in the, or intelligent in the gospel. Now, this is important. The emphasis here is on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in the end of verse number 20, it says, they spake in the Grecians preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, words are very important in Scripture. They're not preaching to a Jewish, Jewish audience. And it's very important to understand what audience you are speaking to. I'll explain this in just a second. But I can't address a child, like a five-year-old, how I address a 50-year-old. They're not going to understand the same. Every parent understands that. You try to talk to your five-year-old like you talk to you know, your husband or your wife, and good luck. <laughs> See how it's going to work out. It's not going to work out. You have to get on their level. Same thing is true with cultures. You have to understand the culture and try to relate to them in their culture. I'm not saying you, know, you start you know, speaking to them and all that kind of stuff, and I don't even know like, what culture this is, but yo, 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 what up? You know, it's not what I'm saying with the gospel. I don't think that's any kind of cultural thing at all. It's just me being weird. Um, you know, like, I know. Totally messed you guys up today. It's what I want you to do. It's sharing the gospel. Yo, 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 here's the gospel. No. Now I sound like Yogi Bear. I need to pick up the boxes. Man, I'm so far off track. Anyway. You have to know your audience. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. You can't speak to a highly intellectual, or highly intellectual individual as though they have a limited education, vice versa. You know, if someone has a limited education, you can't speak above them. That's what I'm trying to say. Those that have more of a higher education, they're going to want you to speak on their level, not below them because they're like, that's childish. I don't understand that. I mean, speak on my terms. And what I see here is that they had a gospel intelligibility. Here's, here's, here's what I mean. You see, the Gentiles were not looking for a coming Messiah. The Jews were. So it would take time to understand the meaning and the title Christ for them. Where it says they preached the Lord Jesus, they didn't understand Christ. Who is this Christ? Who is this Messiah that you're referring to? This would really sound foreign to them because they had no Old Testament background. But they did understand the meaning of Lord. So what we see here is that these men spoke on their level, the level of those that they were trying to reach to. They had a gospel intelligibility, and that's important for us. Let's move on. There's so much more we have to cover. A third thing here is that they had a personal anonymity. And I love this fact. What we don't know is their names. Now, there are times in scriptures where, for whatever reason, God decides to give us certain individuals' names. There are other times in scriptures where God decides to not give us certain individuals' names. And honestly, sometimes I, I appreciate when we don't have the names because the point is, it's not about the individual, right? There are many times where we try to make it about the individual. We try to elevate people and puff them up and like, man, you're doing a great job and that's, that's great. But really, th there's this personal anonymity here that it, it wasn't about who these guys were. The point of emphasis is that they were doing something. It wasn't about their fame. You know, some are, are only pursuing after fame. But what we need is more individuals who are more concerned with reaching people than they are about being known. Because of this, people trusted in Jesus. But there are many people in America, especially, that are more concerned about being known. You know, we think about social media, and there's great things about social media, there's horrible things about social media too. But some people on social media, it's all about their brand, making themselves known. And I'm not necessarily against that, but here, here's the thing. When you're sharing the gospel, when you're serving in the church, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. And that's what we have to understand. That even if we're never recognized, and I know all of us, look, we like the accolades. We like the recognition. Who doesn't? It is important to, you know, encourage people, but it's not about just let's, let's elevate these individuals. 
personal anonymity that's very important. Making him known more than making ourselves known. A second important principle, not only was there effective evangelism, but quickly, I see dynamic discipleship. Look at verse number 22. Then tidings of these things, all that, that has happened, all the, the great number that has believed has, has made its way back south to Jerusalem, down to the church there. And the church of Jerusalem sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came had seen the grace of God. He was glad, he was excited, he exhorted them, he, he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord, that they would listen to God, that they would follow God. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people were added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. So Barnabas was encouraging these individuals, and he realized a very, very important thing. He couldn't do it alone. So he got help. He went and, and got his new friend, Saul, down in Tarsus, who's been there away for a couple years and studying and trying to know more about God and understanding of him, gets him, brings him back to Antioch. And they spend a whole year, the two of them, discipling the church, pouring into the church, teaching the church. You see, Barnabas, he, he realized he could not do it alone. And it's important because what they're doing is they're not just getting people saved and then, all right, all right, good luck. They're getting people saved and then, all right, now let me train you. You know, that, that's what's one thing I am passionate about here and that's what we're trying to do and I know it takes time to establish that, but I've seen it in my life and in, in my years as a, as a pastor's kid in other ministries that, look, salvation is important. Don't get me wrong. Evangelism is important. But I've seen many ministries and churches where they were all about the evangelism, but they weren't about the discipleship. And what I mean is that, you know, people are getting saved, and praise God, you need that. But you also need people to understand more about salvation, more about God, more about his word. You can't get someone saved and then, all right, good luck. Go do it alone. That's not what it's about. That's why... God has instructed us to teach and train those that we have come in contact with. And I love this quote from Paul Chappell. He says, discipleship is not the miracle of a moment. It's the process of a lifetime. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes effort. I mean, they spent a solid year, and I'm sure it was in-depth training. It wasn't just like, let's meet once a month. You know, everything's going to be good. It wasn't just 12 sessions and we're done. It was, it was in-depth, I'm sure, for a solid year pouring into these individuals. And honestly, there are a lot of us that we don't like to do that because it takes time and patience and energy. But that's the important thing. Saul and Barnabas dedicated themselves to equip these new, new Christians. And these believers patiently and persistently learned what their mission was as a follower of Jesus Christ. Verse number 26 at the end, they got a name change. You know, you think about this, and I'm, I don't have too much time to talk about that, but, you know, why do people get a name change? There's so many different reasons for that. It says at the end of verse 26 that they were first, the disciples were first called, or called Christians first in Antioch. Again, up until this time, the early Christian community had only been referred to as people of the way. The believers here did not call themselves Christians. Rather, they were called Christians. That's important. Because the term Christian at this time was derogatory. And we're not going to say anything derogatory, but think of some derogatory language that you can use towards another culture, nationality. That's the picture here. So to be called a Christian, which means little Christ, it was a derogatory term. But these believers here they embraced it. Like, okay, go ahead. You can call me a little Christ because that's who I'm trying to emulate. I know you're meaning it for evil. You're meaning it to be a derogatory, slanderous name, but they accepted it. You see, those in the church here welcomed it because they were willing to take a stand in the name of Jesus Christ. 
They were pleased to bear this label of derision. And really, this is a turning point in early Christianity. The followers of Jesus were so different from the culture around them that citizens had to develop a third classification. It wasn't just Jew and Greek anymore. Now it was Jew and Greek and Christians. But the cool thing here is that what had developed was a new humanity. It wasn't just, I'm a Jew, I'm a Greek, I'm this, I'm that. Okay, if you're in Christ, I'm a Christian, and that brings people from all spectrums together. That's the amazing thing that we see here. And if we're going to bear his name, if you're a Christian, if you're a child of God today, listen, if we're going to bear his name in the world, then we must likewise bear his attitudes, his actions, his character, his conduct, and so much more. So if you claim to be a Christian, then it's up to you to bear Christ's image, to bear his character, his actions, his attitudes, all other things. The term Christian is more than just a name change. It's a new identity. And then we see the third thing finally today. Not only was there effective evangelism and dynamic discipleship, but they had a mercy ministry. Verse 27 through 30. And in these days came the prophets from Jerusalem into Antioch. And there stood one up of them named Agabus, that signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth, a great famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man, now this is important too, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief. So all the disciples did what they could do. Are you getting that? They weren't determined to do more than they could do. They determined to do what they could do. You know, I think about this sometimes. People are like, well, I can't give because I don't have anything to give. God has given you something. Maybe you can't give as much as someone else. You know, here's the thing. God never asks you to give a million dollars if he's not giving you a million dollars. I'm going to give a million dollars to church. Well, you don't have a million dollars. That's just foolish. God's not asking you to do more than you have. He's asking you to give what you have. And that's what they did here. They gave according to their ability, what they had. Now, think about this. What is, somebody just answer this. What does sacrificial mean? What does sacrificial mean? Anybody? Give till it hurts. Give above what? Give above your means, David? There, you got it? Yeah, give until it hurts, above your means. Sacrificing something. You know, all of us have things in our lives. And, and honestly, it's not much of a sacrifice. And I, I've used this illustration before. You have $100, and I'm going to give somebody a dollar. That's not a sacrifice, is it? No, because you still have 99. It's no big deal. A sacrifice would be like, I have $100, which I don't, but all I have is this cleaning cloth for my glasses. There's $100, okay? Here. You want it? Can't have it! Just kidding. No. Now give me back, because I need it for my glasses. But that's the point. You know, sacrificing is like, okay, I need this but there's someone else that needs it more. He doesn't have glasses, so he doesn't need it, but not on today. I know, I'm going offhand, but anyway, the point, the illustration is that it's a sacrifice to give up something that, yes, we need, but someone else needs more. Understand? That's what sacrificial means. And we see a tremendous sensitivities, sensitivity of the Christians gathered in Antioch when they heard this prophetic announcement from Agabus that there was going to be a famine in the land, they did what they could. Hey, those in Judea, they are struggling. They are struggling. They've lost their crops. They've lost uh, their income. So let's try to help them. And again, that's another mark of a thriving Christ-honoring church. In Acts 11, they gave according to their ability, and then they send the gifts with Barnabas and Saul back to them. Now, three things quickly stand out and will be done about this mercy ministry. It was selfless. Think about this. This was a young church. 
year, year and a half, maybe. And they took an offering in their first year of life. No member has probably been saved for more than a year. Some have probably been saved for just a couple months. These are Gentiles that came to Christ. Now, some people think you have to grow into giving, and I, I get that to an extent, but this New Testament church became generous immediately. You see, the moment they trusted Christ and started growing in Christ, they realized something that many of us forget, that I've got God, and I don't need to worry about my money anymore because God's going to take care of me. That means we can look at our money as a tool to invest in others instead of our Savior because our money is never intended to be our Savior. And what we see from this church, and we'll see it more, and when you study this church in history, they were selfless. Second thing, quickly, they were generous. Again, it's not about asking how much. It's about giving what you can. And God never expects you to give what he hasn't given you. Again, if he hasn't given you a million dollars, I'm going to make a commitment to give a million dollars. How can you give if he hasn't given it to you? You can't. Don't rob a bank. Please don't do that. If you don't have it, you can't give it. In Acts chapter 11, as the famine approached, they generously provided relief for their fellow believers in Jerusalem. And such a background prepared this church at Antioch well as the first to send missionaries to reach people with the gospel. They were selfless, they were generous, and quickly and finally, their giving was corporate. What I mean was that it wasn't just one or two. You know, in every church, there are, there are individuals or families that really stand out above. And what I mean is that there are some that really do above and beyond. And sometimes it's very easy to see the ones that do above and beyond and like, you know what, they got it, they can take care of it. But if you're saved, aren't we all part of the body of Christ? And isn't it all of our collective ability and job to, to help people? It is. So what happens a lot of times, you see someone that has a lot, well, it's up to them to really take care of the church. It's up to them to really give to these extra offerings that we take for missionaries and this and that. I, I can't sacrifice anything. I don't have anything to give. That's, wrong, that's a wrong mentality. That's a wrong attitude. You see, I see that it was corporate in the fact that it was all of them collectively. It wasn't just one or two. It was the church community. You know, this church was generous. And God blesses and uses generous people and generous churches, and he provides for both. And look, I am thankful for our church. You know, we don't have tons of people here, but I am thankful for the generosity that has been enacted upon in our church. You know, even this, uh, some of the offerings that we took for, for the Africa trip and the impact offerings to, to give to missionaries, I was, I was overwhelmed. Yes, we had some individuals and family that gave larger sums, but I was overwhelmed at the whole that many people stepped up. And we were able, in, in the church of our size, and we don't have tons, but we were able to give the missionary $8,000, and that's huge. Because of sacrificial giving by individuals and families that said, you know what? God has given me something, and I want to give it back. I want to help other people. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we've been activated to do. And listen, as we grow in health, God will grow our reach. A healthy church family is always asking what is best in order to advance the gospel. What is best for the most people to be reached in the most places? You know, today we often focus about church addition, but the early church was focused on church multiplication. And I'm not concerned about our church being added to. I want our church to be multiplied. You know, and as I said even a couple years ago, what that means is that we are training to send out, multiplying ourselves to other places. Look, Antioch was an influencing church. Jerusalem was, it was an amazing church, very powerful church. Antioch might not have been the most powerful, but they were one of the most influential. You see, power often works from the outside in. Influence works from the inside out. Power focuses or forces people to change. Influence creates the desire within someone to change. 
Again, it's not about being defined by who we were. It's about understanding who we are. I came across this tagline from one church in my studies this week, and I really like this tagline. And they say often at this church, they say, we have to get people comfortable being uncomfortable. That's true. But so many of us are comfortable being comfortable. But we need to become comfortable at being uncomfortable. God shaking us up. God cutting us open like the orange so that we can be spread out, so that we can do more that he has given us to do. You know, we talked about traditions last week in our EQ time and how so many traditions hinder gospel growth because so many of us are so set on these traditions of men. And we can't change this. This has been like that for 50 years, bless God. But if it's not reaching people with the gospel, then who cares? And if it's not biblical, who cares? Again, it's a silly thing, but who cares if you change the paint on the wall? Who cares if you change a light bulb to something that's a little brighter? Who cares? Who cares if you change the track or the change the logo, change the sign? Who cares if what you're doing is trying to reach more people with the gospel? You see, we have to be comfortable getting uncomfortable. God didn't place us here to just live a cushy life and that's it. He placed us here really, and if we're a child of God, to be uncomfortable. Look, look. It's uncomfortable telling someone else about Jesus. It really is at times, isn't it? It's difficult even for me, but I have to force myself to do it. There are times when it just comes naturally out of me. I think because I've really been spending time with God and I've really been doing what he's called me to do. But for many of us, I'm sure many of you are like this, where you talk to someone and like you're like, you know, you go your separate way and you're like, man, I really should have invited him to church at least. Maybe shared the gospel with them. Anyone ever done that? It needs to be a standard part of our life. Because we have to understand that we have been activated. Here's, here's what I want to close with, and I'm going to leave you with a, an illustration, but I think what this all boils down to today is this. We must stop talking and start doing. Look, it's easy to talk the good talk, right? I'm going to talk about how great we are. Well, that's great, but why don't you start doing it? Again, I can talk all day about how good I am at something, and you may believe me for a while, but eventually you're going to be like, uh, Pastor, why don't you show it? <laughs> I can bench 600 pounds. <laughs> I'm sure you all believe me. I know that, right? Thank you. But eventually it's like, prove it. And that's what it comes to in our Christian life. We have to stop talking and start doing I came across a story about an individual who was in an earthquake in California some years ago. A man was being interviewed who had been driving late one night around 3 a.m. when the earthquake hit. He pulled over, he said, and waited for the earthquake to stop and then slowly pulled back onto the road. Despite the sudden surprise of the event, he seemed none the worse for wear until he noticed the taillights of the car in front of him suddenly disappear. He slowed down, and as he approached the spot where the lights had disappeared, he slammed on his brakes. The taillights had disappeared because the car had plunged over the edge of the cliff. The earthquake, it seemed, had completely taken out a small section of the highway bridge. Peering over the edge of this cliff now, he saw a car demolished in the ravine below. But as he considered what he might do to help, he turned around to see more cars heading towards him. He waved his hands and screamed for the first car to stop. The driver ignored him. After all, would you stop at 3 a.m. if there's a person in the middle of the road? Probably not. The man watched in horror as the car disappeared over the edge of the cliff. He had no more luck with the second car, which ignored him and also plunged into the ravine. That's when he saw a bus coming around the corner. At that moment, he said, I resolved that the only way that bus was going over the cliff it was if it was going to take me with it. So he moved into the middle of the road. Waving his shirt and screaming like a madman, he yelled, stop, stop, stop. Fortunately, the bus did stop. And while the bus driver jumped out, initially furious, when he saw what happened, he realized how many lives this man had saved.
and was immensely grateful. The author said, when I heard that story, I thought, what would I have done if I were there? I hope I would have done the same thing that that man did, acting like he was out of his mind for the sake of saving lives. Would I have cared that much about people driving by, not caring that they thought I was a lunatic? Because I had seen something that they hadn't seen? He said, how much more when it comes to the gospel should we be willing to be, in the words of the Apostle Paul, basically a madman for the sake of Christ? Should we not be willing to say, I've seen something you haven't seen, and I'm pleading with you to listen? And I read that this week, and it really hit me. That I, I believe many of us, if, if we were in a situation like that, we'd try to do the same thing. But it's no different seeing souls plunge into eternity. And yet, how many of us are actively out there warning people? Stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop living like this. Because there is a God in heaven who loves you, who sent his son to die for you on the cross. See, that's what we have to understand. Church, that we have been activated. And the key truth as we close this is that Antioch gives us the model of a church that influenced and impacted their community. Their influence hinged, listen, on their urgency to fulfill the commission. Do we have the same urgency? Honestly, myself, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I don't have the same urgency. But we need to. We have to realize that there are souls that are, in essence, driving over the cliff. And we have to be more diligent in telling people, in sharing the gospel, because we have been activated to take what God has given us and give to others. So I guess the question I close with is, who are you influencing? We all look to certain individuals that are influential. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a celebrity. But who are you influencing for Christ?